Welcome to The Forest Garden, your guide to transforming your organic gardening practice into an edible and holistic forest garden landscape. On today's episode of The Forest Garden, we'll be interviewing Dave Scandera of the Food Forest Initiative of Cape Cod and Edible Landscapes of Cape Cod. Dave is a perennial vegetable fanatic whose food forest in Cape Cod absolutely blew me away when I visited him this past summer. The sheer diversity of his front yard was just absolutely astounding. So if you have any interest in growing plants that you can nibble on all year long, even in chilly Zone 6 or Zone 7, then stay tuned for an episode jam-packed with useful tips and tasting notes. Dave Scandura, welcome to the podcast. Ben, do you want to start us off here? How did you and Mike meet, uh, or or where was the connection made for you guys? Yeah, through Facebook. It turned out that Mike and I were in a lot of the same groups, all these kind of perennial vegetable and permaculture and plant nerdy type groups. And I think, I remember Mike, you had shared uh, like a Google Doc or some kind of file of, of permaculture nurseries. I think it was last year or maybe the year before I downloaded it. And then I was like, I friended you. And I was so grateful that you put all that stuff together because that's the kind of stuff that I'm into is like kind of compiling information like that. Yeah, we became friends that way. And then it was cool. It was funny that I'm also part of this group called the Food Forest Initiative of Cape Cod. I am an admin for the Facebook group of that. And then I got a message from Mike like, hey, I really like what you guys are doing. But I don't think Mike knew that I was in, in, even in that group. And I was like, hey, Mike, it's me. I'm also part of this group too. And, and so I think when we realized we had those more connections, it was just like, oh, cool. You'd be probably fun to hang out with. Let's try to hang out sometime. And, and we did finally. We had a good hangout this past summer. Oh, yeah. Me making that list just totally came out of like, midwinter you know mania of like when is this gonna end let me put my hands in the dirt <laughs> yeah yeah i think something about us plant people we like lists we like compiling all of collecting all of the information or all the plants collecting of all kinds i know you know eric tonesmeyer he's very good at making those appendix appendices at the ends of you know his the edible forest garden books those were all him and Every one of his books has a giant appendix at the end full of useful information distilled down to just a few little tables, but they, they're ones that get worn. Those tables get kind of worn away in the books because I refer to them all the time. <laughs> so, so Dave, I looked at, you know, Mike kind of gave me an introduction about sort of the kind of work you're doing out there. It sounds really interesting, but I love just to like hear your story and kind of where, how you ended up doing what you're doing. And maybe we can take the conversation from there. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I've been a big fan since I dropped it within the last year, I think, right? I've been checking out all the cool stuff you guys have been doing. How do I, yeah, how did, how did I get into this? I think ultimately I was into activism and really kind of just like wanting to, you know, change the world and stuff in my early twenties and definitely did a lot of shouting at buildings and, and just kind of like, you know, frustration with just the way things had been going especially in the bush years then i got the bug for growing food i was living in a collective home in in boston and we had actually a good amount of space outside to grow kind of a, a killer urban garden we actually had a really nice garden going and that's when i kind of got the bug for growing food and then i said 
all right, I really like this. I think I think farming is is what I want to try. So then I dabbled in farming and kind of bounced around a little bit and traveled and and to different farms and farming kind of communal farming situations. And then I ended up moving back to the Northeast to kind of get back to the roots. I'm from Cape Cod. And at the time that I was kind of really deep in a certain, in a, in a farm operation is actually when I, on a whim, I picked up uh, Eric Tonsmeyer's book, Perennial Vegetables. And, you know, when you're putting all that time into growing vegetables, annuals, you know, squash and potatoes or whatever, just the, the, the usual vegetables. And then I was like, wait, perennial vegetables. Let me, let me check this out. I was just kind of blown away that there was this whole other world of plants that are more perennial. And in the book, he talks about permaculture and stuff. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, wow, permaculture, that's a, that word, you know, that kind of seems to sum up what I'm looking to get into. Then I, before all this, I had done landscaping on Cape Cod for years, different summers and, you know, high school jobs. And then after high school, it's landscaping on Cape Cod is just, there's a million companies. It's just a crazy, there's just so much like golf course type lawns. And I think every landscaping job that I've ever had over the years and all the conventional landscaping jobs that I'd taken over the years, I'd end up getting to a point where I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I mowing? Why am I like, this is crazy. You know, I eventually probably quit just because of the, the conflict in my head going on. Like we shouldn't be doing this. But I think though, though, during that time, I, the seed was sort of planted in my mind that like, we actually could be growing food and putting all this energy and effort into growing food instead of just, you know, ornamentals and grass. So then I, when I was coming around to permaculture and stuff, I, and actually in, in the edible forest garden book, Dave Jackie talks about, you know, edible landscaping. He just talks about that term. And I was just like, wow, edible landscaping. And that's when I just figured, you know, well, maybe uh, screw it. I'll move back to the Cape and, and like, I've got a landscaping experience and now I really love growing food. So maybe I'll just try it out and see what happens. So I started really small with uh, edible landscapes of Cape Cod. It just over many years, I mean, this is my, I'm just finished my ninth year doing it. And finally, we're at a place where it's like, okay, we've got steady work and we've got a good team and, and we've got a flow and we got systems. But the first one, two and third years were very much experimental and very much like a kind of like a side hustle because I'd, I'd always have other gigs and things that I would be doing mostly. But then I was like, I always really was like, can I turn my passion and hobby of kind of nerding out about, you know, growing food and perennial edibles? And can I turn that into a actual income? Finally, I, I have, but it's definitely, it, it didn't happen overnight. And I, you know, it, it's been an incredible learning process all throughout the way. And that's for sure. Great. Yeah. It sounds like quite the adventure to, to get where you are right now. What are the things you talked about with the perennial vegetables and because I know you know you, you talked a bit about the for the food forest initiative which I'm assuming has a component of public outreach and mm -hmm. and so one of the questions I had how do you go about defining perennial vegetables for people who are like maybe more annual annual gardeners who 
you know, know what perennial means, but they don't know what's out there. Cause there's, as you know, there's, there's a lot of options. And sometimes I struggle with people and I'm just like, well, you know, asparagus, like there's yeah. other things like asparagus out there. Like, how do you talk to newcomers? That's a great question. And that's honestly something that I feel like I have to work on a lot is like, how do you convey the, the epicness of the perennial I feel like it's a bug if you get bit by it like oh yeah growing perennial food and and I think just trying to meet people where they're at and finding those maybe those few plants that might that might open up their world in that aha moment yeah so asparagus rhubarb and then I'll often say like you know a lot of the perennial herbs lavender thyme sage these are perennial herbs so you know there's there's a lot of perennial herbs like that and all the you know I try to start with the most basic stuff that they probably will know you know lemon balm and then just kind of like if you think you still got them then you can kind of keep rattling off stuff more towards the fringe yeah, it's weird. It's like putting a label on things sometimes like what is it a perennial vegetable or is it an herb or is it a is it a shrub? It's tricky, especially because I have so many of these plants just like bouncing around in my head all the time that I'm like, where do I even start? You know, like I, I, I have lists and stuff that I take with me to consults now because sometimes I get so excited about some of these plants that I'll completely lose my train of thought. Yeah, I do that too sometimes where it's like sometimes you're so wrapped up thinking about one specific species that you just discovered or you're really, you know, for me lately, it's been like Chinese quince, like, oh, it has that beautiful exfoliating different colored bark, like maybe that's something that I can integrate into my landscape. And then you're thinking about it so much that it just sort of overwhelms everything else, maybe. So I, I totally hear where you're coming from. We're going to get to this question later in the, the talk, but you just talked about some plants that you get so excited about. I kind of want to know what, what are you excited about this year? What are you looking to, whether that's to plant in your designs or to grow yourself? Are there, is there anything that comes to mind right away? Yeah. So I've, ever since I started growing skirt, I've been absolutely in love. That's CM Cicerum. It's like a perennial parsnip. You know, it, it, so back to that question, I, kind of do the thing like skirt this perennial parsnip turkish rocket it's like a perennial broccoli rob so i i try to use it's like a perennial this good king henry it's like a perennial spinach like you know solomon seal it's kind of like asparagus and you kind of draw those analogies because most people have you know zero experience with them so they have no idea and when you're throwing a completely new plant at them you can just see them kind of being like oh i'm losing them i'm losing them yeah <laughs> You, you kind of try to bridge that with like, it's a perennial this or perennial that, or it's in this family, you know, sea kale, it's a perennial kale. So yeah, that's kind of how I introduce those things. But anyways, yeah, love skirt. I love digging it up. I love cooking it up. I love dividing it. But yeah, like ev every, every year I'm, I'm always trying new things. I'm, I'm exploring and I'm trying to, especially starting around this time of year, I'm like, I'm searching out new new plants and trying to get my hands on new seeds so I can start new things especially a lot of the weird stuff needs needs cold stratification so it kind of needs to be sown this time of year yeah winter is a great time for for doing the shopping and to that's when my I start to get that itch for 
going online and finding obscure seeds from oh yeah sometimes a different country and trying to get them over here for the for the spring oh yeah so i i kind of just briefly touched on it but could you talk a little bit about the food forest initiative yeah so food forest initiative of cape cod is a group that we started a, a group of folks and i and my my partner marina it was a funny just how it all came together this this amazing guy Rand burkert who lives on cape who had at the time had just moved to Cape, who knows Mark Shepard very well on a very friendly personal level. And Rand was playing some guitar at a, at a Bernie fundraiser thing. And of course I'm there showing support and Rand's playing guitar and he's got restoration agriculture sitting there. And I just am like, okay, I'm gonna wait till this guy's done. Cause like, that's my favorite book right there. Restoration Agriculture by Mark Shepard. So sure enough, I wait till he was done. I'm like, hey, what's with that book? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I know Mark Shepard. And, and so we just hit it off. We're instant friends. And then so I had already started a, a meetup group called Gardening Herbalism and Permaculture Meetup of Cape Cod, which got to admit, sad to say, like, I haven't really been doing anything with that meetup group in the last couple of years because we sort of transitioned it over to Food Forest Initiative, which became its own thing. But Rand me and Marina and a couple other folks, we just, we started having like these potluck meetings and we used to call it fruit and nut tree enthusiasts, potluck meetups. And we would just get together and just geek out about like, let's just plant edible trees and fruits and nuts everywhere we can. So then we finally were like, all right, let's get a little more organized and let's come up with a proper title and food forest initiative came up. And then we're like, all right, well, let's put this stuff to action. And um i don't know which came first but we did a we have at this point there's like four sort of public food forests kind of on the ground up and running as we speak one of them is at an audubon sanctuary in barnstable and we got like a two thousand dollar grant from a local organization it's a very diverse and because it's at an audubon it's everything that we're planting is is native it's not like hardcore native, like specific to Cape Cod, but like native to the Northeast. So there's like, there's Papa. We've had a bad luck with getting Amer like true American chestnuts, but we do have Dunstans in currently. And there's hazelnuts and service berries and elderberries and all kinds of herbaceous native ground covers and stuff. And then there's one really exciting project that we started uh, two years ago is actually under the power lines, there's a section of power lines in Harwich on Cape Cod that a friend of ours through Food Forest Initiative lives on a property that abuts it, walks the power lines all the time. And one of these sections just got completely cut down because that's what they do, you know, to manage the power lines. And he saw it as an opportunity. He's like, hey, they just came in and they completely cut everything down just to stubble. He's like, hey, should we propose the idea that we like manage we kind of plant a, a food forest instead so we kind of created a proposal and we we met with actually we met with the town of harwich water department eversource who's the utility company that provides the power and everyone was on board with it so now we have this amazing i think mike visited it food forest that's under power lines so everything 
in the middle, everything directly under the, the, the power lines, everything has to stay 12, below 12 feet. But then as you start to get further towards the sides, then like the next strip, that can be 15 feet. And then as you get to the edge of the woods, it's like, well, those can be like larger trees. So like pawpaws, even some persimmons and even like dwarf fruit trees kind of on the edges. It's, that's been an amazing project to see all the public support. And we just the work days that we've had there, people just coming out and just loving it. It was a lot of work. I mean, we dug, we hand dug swales, mostly on contour and a ton of wood chips, just, I don't know how many yards, but an insane amount of wood chips and a lot of plants. So like aronia, service berry, a lot of different kinds of hazelnuts, different from different sources the bush cherries and then we're on that site where we're not restricted we're not restricted to strictly natives so it's kind of like whatever fits the bill whatever is kind of short or or not going to become a full-size tree so that's been unbelievable mike i'm jealous that you were able to visit that it sounds like a really cool project and it sounds like it could also be replicated in many different places because i'm sure i don't know what you refer to them as but the where they cut out the parts of the, the forest or where they, you know, they're maintaining just grass right now underneath these power lines. Like there's, you know, a lot of land area in the U.S. that could, that I'm sure matches that description that we can kind of replicate some of these systems on. Absolutely. I was lucky enough to visit both food forests. They were awesome. The Audubon one specifically, I was thinking like, why isn't there one of these at every Audubon? You know, like the Audubon at Long Pasture is an awesome site but that's not the only Audubon spot on the Cape even or in New England and a lot of them have just like you said just open grass lawns that are you know essentially food deserts for pollinators and we they could be serving educational functions providing food not necessarily maybe for humans in this context all the time but definitely food for wild animals and Similarly with the other spot, which is the Eversource power line spot, that's another thing is that, you know, those are like super highways for animals, whether it's bears or, you know, coyotes or whatever. So, and I saw that you guys had like the protective fences around all your trees to protect them from deer, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a certain amount of the food that we're planting in these community food forests is going to go to the birds and go to the animals. And, you know, that's part of it too. It's not just food for humans. So it's a great organization. It's great stuff that you guys are doing. And I just feel like it needs to be replicated everywhere. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, we, we agree. And, and since we started doing it, especially with the, the power lines one, I mean, I think I, we get a message every, I don't know, once every couple of months from someone saying, I live on the power lines in so-and-so town. Like, can we do that there? I just kind of say like, well, yeah, like talk to, talk to Eversource, start getting the ball rolling. Like, it definitely is a model that you could you could replicate for sure. And and the funny thing is Eversource, they're they have had a horrible reputation, especially on Cape Cod, for spraying just a ton of crap, all the herbicides and stuff. And and we have just very porous sandy soil. We have a single single source aquifer. It's a hot topic right now that like we most people don't have all these herbicides like that. So providing an alternative and Eversource that right away and they jumped on it like they they're doing it for the greenie points and of course they've already bragged about it in their little like yearly 
thing they're saying oh we're doing this good thing and and they are but and and they they actually put a ton of money towards plant plants for this project so the utility the towns like they might not only just support it but like actually provide resources and eversource on on one of the biggest planting days that we had a giant delivery from Sylvan Nursery, a wholesale nursery. Eversource sent a bunch of line crew, you know, tree workers and, and people that to come and help dig holes and plant trees with us. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, they want it to happen too. I mean, that's all awesome. You know, the, the work that you guys are doing. I was, when I originally reached out, it, it's funny. Yeah, we were having that conversation on Facebook going back and forth. Actually, I think it was from one of the publications that came out, like some press on the Eversource thing. And yeah, when I re- originally reached out, it was Rand who replied. And then you were like, wait a minute, it's, it's also me. Hey, we're just talking on a different platform. Small worlds. But if that could be replicated, you know, I, the reason why I reached out, I was just like, I want to do this in Connecticut. Eversource is big here. And Eversource is definitely trying to capitalize on the, you know, oh, we're doing all this great stuff for your community. Because I feel like most of the time, I mean, they're a power company, you know, so most, most of the time people are just grumpy with them when their power's off. Anything that they can do to give back is good press, you know, it's good for them and good for us. I guess maybe, maybe moving on a little bit, moving into other realms. One thing that we sort of touched on this before, but when I was at your site, I was really blown away with the like ridiculous diversity of your food forest. It's definitely the biggest food forest I've seen on private property. You know, something that really blew me away was that all these different plants that are like in Eric Tonsmeyer's perennial vegetables or the stuff that you see in these Facebook groups that somebody's selling seed for on Etsy and like, you know, a different language. Not only did like I acquired those seeds, but then did they ever grow for me? No, but like you acquired them, successfully grew them and then have like, you know, a skirt patch that's 13 feet long and four feet wide and can actually eat skirt like as it was intended or have zuki taro like who knew you could grow taro in freaking cape cod so yeah any of these like really and also like i see your your instagram posts all the time with you're still harvesting or you still could be harvesting perennial vegetables in december which is also pretty mind-blowing so maybe if you could just sort of talk about some of those more fringe ones that are sort of the unusuals that people might not know about and just sort of comment on, on some of them. I think that could be really valuable to our listeners. Yeah. Where to start, man. Ooh, yeah. We're putting you on the spot to come up with uh, obscure, obscure vegetable to, to talk about. Manchurian tuber gourd. A few fruits from this year and it was actually really good. To me, the, 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 I'm kind of in this whole thing because of all this, the, the, the fringe stuff in the in the lesser known stuff and i'm trying to i'm trying to get these plants to a point where i can start propagating them and start offering them and start incorporating them in the work that we do with edible landscapes because as you know and i and i know you know once you start looking for some of these plants it becomes this like incredible time drain and it just is like it's just crazy. So I kind of want to have a lot of these plants because there's no other nurseries in at least nearby, especially on Cape Cod, that I can just go pick up a Korean celery plant or, or you know, like I'd have to I'd have to order that a special order from like one of these mail order permaculture nurseries and they probably only ship it in the spring or the fall. And like, but I'm trying to 
like I'm trying to grow these plants out so I can save seeds and then propagate either from seed or from division so that I can actually start sharing them and, and, and because the joy they bring, I mean, to, I mean, Korean celery, Dystania takasimana in particular, just that plant stays green all year round. It's insane. It's just nuts. It, like you can literally harvest green little celery nibbles from that plant like all year round. I think that part is kind of one of the missions that I have, at least with the with the with our kind of edible landscaping businesses is getting people like really stoked about that and, and like, oh yeah, like you can you can actually eat like greens from your garden in January and February and, and like without greenhouses and without like any kind of high-tech automation. And that that's the beauty of a lot of the perennial perennial greens. I mean I, I know you know Mike about a lot with the perennial kale, which I mean if you do have row cover or a greenhouse, like you can complete you can eat that totally all all winter. All right. So some of these plants that you have growing in in that freaking giant food forest of yours, you know, you're growing Aurelia cordata, a variegated Turkish rocket plant, which I didn't know existed until I went to your spot. Siberian purslane, Claytonia siberica. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know about purslane, but this specific variety, I don't think I've ever heard of. This goes on and on here. I see that you have some some chicories. It just seems like you have every, you know, every single thing from the perennial vegetables book is in your backyard almost. Well, ever since I got that book, I've been like, I'll like check back to it and be like, all right, this year, what plant, like what plants haven't I tried yet? And, and, and like, let, let's see if I can find them, you know, and like, I, I will go back to it. And then when Stephen Barstow came out with Around the World in 80, with eight, in 80 Plants, that book has great stuff in it too. He, Stephen Barstow is an amazing, just a great, just a, all around, seems like a great person. And But yeah, it's kind of like a weird hobby obsession just to like see if some of these plants can grow. First of all, can even grow and like can become perennial if they taste good. And if they kind of are like low maintenance, no fuss and like don't need a ton of babying, it's like, all right, they win and they'll, they'll stick around. Like just right now, I'm looking at a, a post you made back from like the hunger gap period in early spring and you have a roasted Aurelia alata and like a pretty mm. decent amount of it. Mm -hmm. And all of, you know, all these hungry gap greens or what is this even? It's Blanche Turkish Rocket and Blanche mm -hmm. Tostas. Yep. Angelica, like every spring green you could ever imagine. It's just mind boggling. Yeah, it's it's been sweet. Yeah, Aurelia Lata, uh, Japanese Angelica tree. That one, not sure if I'd recommend it in terms of its in sort of like aggressiveness. I've I've I planted it like seven or eight years ago, and now it's starting to send up uh, root suckers you know up to 10 15 feet away from the original tree and i'm like oh no and they're thorny oh they're like if you drag the hose across the base of that thorny tree it'll like rip the hose it's it's crazy so the spring the like the the shoots that come out of the woody stems it, it's it, in the spring are really really good where i'm not so i'm personally i'm a horrible cook my my wife marina is much oh she's amazing and and uh but I ha we have a thing where like 
and I think Mike knows this because I told him, we just, we kind of, we kale chip things. Like, I'll take whatever greens, if it's like chicory or, or whatever. Like, if I know it's edible, like all, any of the alliums, any of the, Hablitzi uh, is amazing. But you just kind of take whatever greens and just coat them lightly in whatever oil, whatever oil works and a little bit of salt. And you kind of, you treat them like you would with kale chips put them in the oven, uh, you know, in high heat for like 10, 15 minutes and, or not even until they're crispy, um, like a golden kind of still green, but a little bit of golden crispiness. It's an, it's a great way to try the new flavors of things and, and to really get a sense for how you, how it tastes. And sometimes we'll mix them all up together, but I try to like separate them so I can really get a good taste test. That's a great point. I, I've only heard of people making chips out of kale, right? There's no reason why you can't do that with so many other types of leaf crops. I bet there's, I bet there's some that might have like different water contents that might not work as well, but yeah. it seems like it's a easy way to, because sometimes we can grow all these, these plants, but if we don't either know recipes to cook them or they just maybe don't taste good, you know, on their own, just not fried up in a, with some oil. That's a good way to get, get them in. And like you said, to kind of introduce yourself to the new flavors real quick on the Aurelias. I've tried the devil's walking stick, like the native, mm. the Aurelia Spinoza. Right. Um, and I, I've, I haven't tried the, the Angelica, the Japanese Angelica to know which one I'm, I'm assuming the Japanese one tastes maybe a bit milder, although I didn't really care. I didn't really dislike the, the Spinoza just kind of tasted like kind of strong asparagus, mm -hmm. I guess. But I would wonder if, if the Spinoza is less aggressive than the, mm. the Asian variety. Um, but in some, it's funny just because sometimes you trade off like productivity and like invasiveness. It's like, okay, well, if this plant's going to be invasive, but really productive, maybe it's worth choosing this species. But if this other one's going to be native and, but a little bit less productive, it's, I guess it's just kind of what, what you want, but have you tried the, the native Aurelia? No, I, the Spinoza, I got seeds for last year and those ones didn't germinate, but dot, dot, dot yet. I mean, they're still sitting in a, uh, like a little tray. They may, who knows, they might germinate, but no, that one's definitely on the list because it is native to the sort of eastern mm -hmm. part of the US. I've only found it in the woods uh, when I was living in Tennessee. It was fairly ubiquitous in, in that particular time of year, which was like early spring. And yeah, kind of as you described, spiky. I can see why they call it the devil's walking stick. Yeah. And had a good flavor. I think I tried to propagate it myself, not from seeds, but from like a little green cutting. And put it in some water and hope it because I do that with everything. I don't know about you guys, but like, yeah. I just will put everything in some water and see if it, see if it will root and propagate. It didn't. Have you guys had uh, Aurelia cordata? I, I, I see that you were growing it, but I don't yeah. know if it was big enough to. Yes, of course. I've taken a couple of my, my Aurelia cordata. So the, the straight non cultivar version seedling is probably only two or three years, but I have the sun King variety which you can actually find sun king aurelia cordata pretty regularly it's like seems to be a somewhat common nursery plant yeah i wasn't super impressed yeah i was definitely not gonna lie hoping for it to be a little tastier i don't know it, with a lot of these though and and i'm definitely taking a page out of stephen barstow's book literally and figuratively that you really kind of have to train your taste buds a little bit with new 
flavors. I mean, you know, we just, we, we didn't grow up eating a lot of this stuff. And so like, it's going to taste a little foreign at first. A lot of the things that I en really enjoy now, just whatever random greens and flavors, I probably originally, the first time I ate it was like, eh, ugh, I don't know about that. But then you kind of just, you develop a, a love for it or I don't know if it's psych it's definitely psychological, but uh, acquired tastes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think Udo is also, if I remember correctly, I remember Eric mentioning at some talk, like he had noticed like special species of wasps on Udo, like flowering the, or, or pollinating the Udo flowers that he, he's never seen before. So it was attracting in some potentially beneficial, but at least unique insects. So, I mean, sometimes you have to weigh that too, right? It's like, okay, maybe this is my favorite tasting plant, but it's like wonderful for wildlife. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, not, not entirely about, about flavor, but I'm, I'm, I agree. It's like, you know, we didn't grow up eating these plants and also we don't necessarily know how to use them in the best way, like how to cook them, how to combine what flavors to combine them with to really make them shine. All right. So I've got another, I've got another list to throw at you from your own creation. All right. So we got in one single Instagram post, Chinese bugleweed, downy woodmint, big leaf aster, and the perennial sorghum all like the only one of those that I knew was edible and like in you know hip to the to the community that we're in is the m61 survivor sorghum mm -hmm. what what the, what the hell is Chinese bugleweed what is downy woodman big leaf <laughs> ast I know you can eat asters in this early spring but like what are, what are these things so Chinese bugleweed I got that from Edgewood Nursery it's like the the tuber it, they have these little tubers that are like they're all right but they're like starch starchy and crunchy uh big leaf aster i got that from jonathan bates's nursery food forest farm definitely hoping that they would have tasted a little bit better definitely not good for raw eating but they passed the um kale chip test they tasted pretty good um as like a chip like a kind of a oily and salty the perennial sorghum, we'll find out if it's perennial. I, I got that from Experimental Farm Network. That, that I think they're probably one of the only ones that are distributing that. I, it was such a bummer. So like we had, all, we had this crazy storm in the fall and a locust tree fell smack dab. One of the branches was directly on top of the perennial sorghum and it just crushed it. But we'll see if it does, if it comes back next year or whatever. All right, so I'm back at it. How about how about this one? Nettle-leaved bellflower? Yeah, the campanulas have edible greens, which some of them are like pretty good. And I, I, I got a bunch of different kinds of campanulas two years ago. Have you done the same thing with like the kale chip thing? Or is that one that you haven't tried yet? Yeah, no, I've tried kale chips. It was, it was decent as far as I can remember. The nettle leaf one though is actually pretty good. The, the leaves and they look just like kind of nettle, nettle-y. The uh, really cool, that, that stingless nettle is really cool. Are you talking about fen nettle or are you talking about the, uh, which for there's two different varieties and I have them both mixed up. The one that I got, I got it from Oikos. He had it as stingless nettle, not fen nettle, like uh, Urica dioica. I think there, there's a lot of blurriness with between the the stingless nettle and and stuff I'm, I'm not sure if anyone really knows like what the true i don't know maybe there someone does know like the true botanical it, it could also be like because i've got that 
that stingless or less sting nettle from Oikos as well. And I wasn't, I was thinking maybe it was a, a grassless, like a urtiger grassless, like a native species. Cause that's it, the long slender leaves sort of look like, I, you know, I, I've only seen photos of the confirmed grassless, but that's kind of what it looks like. But you know, you're right. It, it's, it's a really cool plant. Does yours sting at all? Cause mine still would sting a little bit, but I couldn't tell if it was just me getting used to it and I'm <laughs> like, Oh, it's, it's not, it's not so bad, but yeah. uh, cause I haven't, I haven't been stung by real nettle in a while. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Like you have to try. It's what, like, you're like, yeah. Come on. Oh, okay. There it is. Right. 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 But yeah, it grows just as well. It seems. All right, guys. So I feel like we should take a second to sort of introduce all of these species to our listeners who may not be as familiar with them. So when we're talking about nettle in general, that's Urtica dioica, but there's subspecies within Urtica dioica. And then there's also Urtica dioica is just nettle. It's the European introduction nettle that has become the most common nettle that you'll see growing in open sunny fields. But then there's also wood nettle, which is Lapartea canadensis. It's actually not even in the same genus. It's in an entirely different genus of plants. That one has also been reportedly somewhat less stingy, or you know, some people claim that that one is stingless sometimes. And that one is the one that you is supposedly also more okay with dealing with shade. And then so within Urtica gracilis, that's called slender nettle, or sometimes California nettle, and that one has also been sort of advertised as being the stingless nettle. Then you have Urtica dioica subspecies Galepsifolia, and that one is fen nettle. And the fen nettle is supposedly one that clumps instead of running throughout your yard, instead of spreading via underground rhizome and popping up and creating colonies that way. The fen nettle supposedly is a clumping perennial rather than one that spreads really rapidly. And it also has bigger leaves, and it is also supposedly a little bit tasty. I've planted different species of all of these, and it's very hard to actually confirm that you're getting the right species when you order it from someone, because frequently, you know, you'll get it from someone who got it from someone else who said it was XYZ thing. But there's lots of different species, and they all look the same. It can be a little bit confusing. Basically, the stingless nettle from Oikos might be fen nettle, which is Urtica dioica subspecies Galepsifolia, or it could be Urtica dioica subspecies Gracilis, which is the slender nettle. It's kind of hard to tell. We don't really know. We'll have to talk to Ken, I guess. Okay, so getting away from this long-winded nettle explanation and back to the conversation. Another one from these lists, I really, by the way, I really did enjoy all of these Instagram posts that you do because I kind of try to do the same thing where I'm walking through my, you know, forest garden very, very young forest garden compared to yours in the summertime. And it's just, I don't know, the amount of diversity you have packed into yours just makes my mouth water. But another one that you have here, and I have this too, but I haven't tried it yet, is ice plant. Have you tried eating ice plant? I did finally. Well, I only tried it this year for the first time and it did flower. I got that one because it's got, quote, edible flowers, which a lot of things have. A lot of plants that are never ever listed as like an edible plant or a perennial vegetable or anything have edible flowers tend to be more edible than other plant parts it seems at least especially petals anyways i didn't think it was amazing 
But as like an edimental or whatever, to quote Stephen Barstow, it definitely just the fact that it's beautiful and it's very succulent looking, the, the, the foliage and, and the flowers are, are stunning. Purp, the, the one I have is, has purple flowers. It was, yeah, it was all right. It wasn't like amazing. Like, a, like I, I really enjoy like a comfrey flower. Like there's a, like I, I enjoy eating those or, or like I enjoy eating a dandelion straight up. But I can't remember. There was something I was like, all right, it wasn't wasn't blown away by it but yeah the ice plant i got that from baker creek they were selling the ice plant seeds last year so i i had heard about ice plant as a perennial sort of a i don't know how what we're going to call it perennial ground cover basically Mm -hmm. used in like these super crazy fancy cooking shows and then i just like stumbled upon it uh, at a random garden center where they had every variety you've ever heard of and once again not being sold as an edible plant at all you know as these as starter plants for like five bucks each and i was like wow okay this is pretty crazy because anytime i see something listed in like the experimental farm network catalog or something i just immediately assume like i can get this nowhere else Mm -hmm. but uh, that was one that surprised me okay maybe this will be the last that i just harass you with all these uh plants i'm just looking now and i saw that the, the edible tuber gourd fruits they look almost like a you know, like the fruit, like the seeds that are coming out of this thing that you're squishing in your hand, it almost looks like a passion fruit. Like, what did it taste like? It was surprisingly good for a fruit that like most people, at least in the West have probably never heard of or had. It was like, I I would eat that. I'd eat that. Like I, I didn't, I enjoyed it. The, the seeds were kind of like bitter, but it was cool. Like you could either chew them or not. Like they were soft seeds, but you could like swallow them whole or chew them and they were a little bit bitter. Definitely. Yeah. It kind of had like that. Yeah. The seeds have like that coating, like a, like a kind of a gooey coating, kind of like what tomato seeds have. This is the tuber gourd. Yeah. 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 And so it has edible fruits and then it also has edible tubers. All right. So, so some other ones from this same post, Madeira vine, scotch lovage, grass nut. <laughs> I've never heard of these. Yeah. What is grass nut? Dave, you're in a different level. Yeah, so grass nut, trying to think, I, that one is like so inch crept along so small that I, I haven't even nibbled on that guy yet. What's the genus on that? Uh, hold on, it's Tritelia uh, tri, Alexa. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I, I haven't even, I haven't tasted that one yet. Another big surprise from when I visited you was that you said you'd been eating the, you know, I, ornamental rhubarb is beautiful. And it's usually planted in, like, if you, I was at Cornell and they had it and they said, oh yeah, this is an ornamental rhubarb and like you can use the root for certain things. But certain people um, have in literature claimed like, oh yeah, I eat stalks just like regular rhubarb and it tastes the same or it tastes just as good. And then you said that and you've been doing it and you're still alive. So, (laughs) you know, like the Turkish rhubarb. Yes. Yeah. The Chinese rhubarb, Turkish rhubarb. Yeah. um, Amazing. The, I mean, as a, as a, yeah, as an ornamental, the, the leaves are just way pretty. I mean, they're amazing compared to this, the common rhubarb and it's, yeah, it's, it's like got a little bit of an extra layer of interestingness when you eat the stalks. I can't say I've eaten like a ton of it. Like I, like, I don't sit there and feast on rhubarb. Like I don't just, I haven't, I haven't included it in like in any kind of like rhubarb pie or anything, but I think it would work just as well. It's, you know, same genus. I mean. I got to get me some of those because you're right. It is. I mean, there's a reason why it's also called called ornamental rhubarb. 
So what is, what is Madeira vine? Madeira vine, that one, that one's right. that's not native. So that one, when you look up that one, it's often like talks about it as a tropical, like invasive plant. People talk like, careful about this plant, like it takes over the tropics. So it was kind of a fringe thing to even try anyways. And I didn't even think it would come back, but it did. But I think we have a cold enough climate that it's not going to become invasive, but it still actually will be a perennial. I believe the roots are what you would consume on that. I haven't tried them yet. I've only had that one in the ground for, so it only made it through that, I guess the first one winter so far, but the flowers on it are amazing. It, it flowers profusely. When you get up close to the flowers, there's like all kinds of little flies that it's just cool to see a plant that's totally not native at all, but it is clearly like feeding flies and stuff. I'm looking at that, some photos right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting looking plant. The leaves, it looks like are kind of wavy looking too, but yeah, the flowers are beautiful. What about this one? Asiatic plantain, Plantago asiatica? Sure. Plantago, that genus, as far, as far as I know, everything in the plantain genus is edible. And I've, I always nibble, like anytime I see a lance leaf plantain, broadleaf, of course, like I'll, I'll pick them up and like, you know, nibble on them. I'd say the best, my favorite plantain to eat straight up, probably be sea plantain, Plantago maritima, I believe, because it actually has kind of a salty, even if you're not, so usually you see it growing like near uh, like the water or the ocean, but even if you're growing it in the garden, which I have growing in the garden, it has, it has a salty kind of a flavor, which is really cool. All the plantains have an interesting kind of a flavor to them. Yeah, the, those are definitely one that's like an acquired taste for, for an edible green, for sure. It's like, because it's also a little bit rough, a little bit like leathery. You kind of have to like want to be eating chewy, leathery greens, you know, like I want to do this. This is healthy. That's um, really interesting about the salty leaves. I mean, there's a couple plants that none that none that I can think of that are really hardy to to like the the Connecticut or the Massachusetts area. I know like I know in the UK there's like salt bush and there's some other <laughs> things are called salt bush that are different different species. But yeah, I've never heard of that that plantain. Speaking of maritima, unless unless you have another perennial vegetable, Mike, I wanted to ask about prunus maritima. Do you since you're in Cape Cod, I'm assuming there's a lot of beach plum around. Oh yeah. Um, is that something that you use in your, your food forest and your designs too? Or is it that, are they just so ubiquitous? That's like, you don't need to plant those. No, we, we use them often. Yeah. Prunus maritima and beach plum is, is all over the place. That's a really funny plant. You could kind of get lost doing research on it because there was, there was efforts to try to kind of improve it and like make it yield every year instead of every like second or third year which is kind of how it is ocean spray even put a bunch of research into trying to make that or or trying to figure out like can we make beef plum a commercial crop and they they gave up on it they're like ah we can't tame this one screw it it's just a wild plant but there are definitely improved beach plum varieties out there I know Luther Burbank even was interested in beach plum and, and did some breeding with it and there's even 
if there's a couple, well, it exists that there's a there's a yellow slash orange fruited beach plum, very rare, but they're they're out there and like every now and then you can find one and and they're awesome to find. It's just exciting. But yeah, and they can also usually when you buy beach plums, they tend to be seedlings. They you can get a lot of variety in in shape and size in beach plums, so it can be kind of hard to predict when you're planting a beach plum in the landscape. Sometimes they can get really big and then sometimes they can be like super dwarfy and like just never get that big and it's just kind of how you see them in the wild too like sometimes you see beach plum shrubs just get massive and then sometimes you see these little like practically i want to say ground covery but like three foot tall little straggly beach plum shrubs so there's a lot of like variation in in the beach plum and is the, the the attractive part? I mean, it's a it's a native plum. I'm assuming it's tolerant to to salt, not salty, uh, sandy soil, and mm-hmm. maybe tolerant to high winds or something because it's you know coming from the coast coastline. Like, what would what what's a good uh, summary of of why you like that species? All those. I mean, it's insanely adaptable. It it just seems to do well. Like I've planted it in a lot of different scenarios, and it's basically done great in all of them i mean i've even planted it in pretty crazy clay and it thrived there too wow Uh, there's there's weird clay pockets on the cape so sometimes you can you just put your shovel in and you're like oh that's all clay you're like oh we're supposed to plant a beach plum here well let's do it (laughs) it has an incredible history related to the cape i mean part of the reason why the tourism industry became what it is or the reason why the Cape Transit system is what it is today is because people selling beach plum jam on the side of the road. And there's this mm-hmm. long history of people harvesting beach plums and then, you know, making jam from it. And I think that's maybe part of the reason why there was interest in cultivating them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, in the summertime, was at the research farm Lockwood Farm in Handham, Connecticut, really the only cool thing we have in the state when it comes to this sort of stuff. And they have there the only selection of beach plums from what whoever, you know, when that was happening, when they were trying to find the improved selection, and then eventually they gave up, I think it was Cornell, that the Cornell horticulture program that went all up and down the East Coast, selecting like the improved seemingly improved selections of beach plum just finding the best tasting fruit or the largest fruit or whatever and then they planted them all out the beach plum propagates really easily from cuttings and so they did that and then the research farm in Connecticut went up there and they got they took cuttings from every plant and they tried to do the same thing in Connecticut and then Cornell decided to rip out all their trees so now if they want any material they come down to Connecticut to get it but point being here is there's this giant field of beach plums of all the improved cultivars in Hamden at this farm that pretty much nobody is taking care of. The, the research on it has been abandoned because the person who was working on it retired. And I don't know if they have any plans to, to do anything with it. So I'm pretty sure we can just kind of roll up and take Scion at any time if we want. When I, when I was there, you're right. Literally like every single tree was entirely different. There were some trees that had like the biggest fruit I've ever seen on a beach plum. And it only grew to be like three feet high. And then next to it is like a 12 foot tall beach plum with an entirely different fruit. And there's, and another thing that they mentioned is that birds don't really eat them. So they just hang on there until they fall off and rot. And, you know, it seems like a great crop for improvement, but nobody's really, nobody's doing it. 
That sounds that sounds really nice. We'll have to uh, next time we we do round two or episode two together, three of us. We should meet at <laughs> meet at the repository, the the germplasm, yeah. the beach plum germplasm repository down there. Because yeah, I'd love to. I've never even had a beach plum. I'd love to like try all the different kinds and and learn about who's doing what. It sounds like there's not a lot of activity anymore with the improvement of that species, but that's cool to learn that ocean spray tried to to do some improvements on on beach plum it has a lot of potential we don't have a lot of like native fruit trees that that are cold hardy and and tough and have good tasting fruit so i think it's well worth you know genetic improvement man if i only had multiple lifetimes to <laughs> to, to try to tackle some of these projects that would be that'd be fun to do beach plum breeding project but you know that's that's something that you know, I know the experimental farm net, network is trying to create sort of like a network of people that can do some improvements and some breeding work to whether they're professionals or amateurs to try to improve some of these crops. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that species just because I know it's kind of Mike, you talked about the history in, in Cape Cod. Are there any other, I mean, we have to wrap up relatively soon, but are there any other species that grow kind of wild in, in the area that you like particularly? Or maybe maybe fruits that if if it helps to narrow things down. Like, do you guys have pawpaws there? Can you grow pawpaws? We can we can grow them for sure. Yeah. I they they don't exist in the wild that I know of. And as far as I research I've done, they they I don't think we're ever technically native on Cape Cod because I think it's like you know Cape Cod is like ten thousand years old and it's more yeah. so like I. I don't think Papa's really made it there. Right. They do great. They do great. And I always recommend them to people because, as you know, like people just want to, they're like, oh, I want to do edible landscaping. I want to plant, I guess, apples. You know, that's like the first thing most people think of, which is who doesn't love apples? But I'll be like, well, you know, there's other stuff that's a little bit sure. more. You know, maybe easier because, like, honestly, apples are tricky, really tricky on, on where we are just being at the sea level. And it, we're in a very humid environment and there's not a lot of air drainage. It's just apples and pears are trickier, but pawpaws are easy, you know. Persimmons Definitely. do great, too. And mulberries do great. And I, I love coming across mulberries. They'll, you'll, I'll find mulberries randomly on, on Cape. That's always fun. I wouldn't object to sitting sitting by the beach at Cape Cod eating mulberries. It sounds <laughs> it sounds delightful. Yeah, we should probably wrap up. But Dave, thanks so much for for coming on the show and and sharing what you do and answering all of our plant geek questions. Yeah, you're you're really pushing this this whole movement forward to really expand the um, types of foods that are available and kind of at the forefront of all that. So thank you for your work. And so where where can people go to learn more about what you do and stay connected yeah we're um we're on instagram at edible landscapes and facebook just edible landscapes of cape cod you can shoot us an email at contact at edible landscapes.net that's how you can get in touch yeah we mostly just work on cape and maybe over the bridge sometimes but mostly just grinding away at helping people grow food grow gardens and kind of meeting people where they're at and Food Forest Initiative, if someone yeah. wants to find out more about that. Yep. Food Forest Initiative is on Instagram and Facebook. And we would love, I mean, if there's anyone listening who's anywhere on Cape or near Cape and want to be involved, like we tend to have somewhat regular 
like work days, like monthly ish, but everything got kind of COVID weird. But definitely, if you shoot, so if you want to get involved with Food Forest Initiative, shoot an email to foodforestinitiative at gmail.com and we can, you know, plug you in. We're also, like I said, on Facebook and, and Instagram, send a message that way. But we're always looking for more people who want to dig some holes and pull some pull some weeds because you know there's all that part of it like it's kind of easy to just plant trees as you guys and plant cool plants but then like keeping them alive and and keeping like the invasives from from strangling them and all that like that's that's a ongoing thing and I think that's the less glamorous part of it but but a very important part of you know seeing these things through and and, and making sure that they work and survive and so that it can be a success you know so definitely always looking for more hands on deck for that kind of stuff for sure great well thanks again for for coming on and yeah i hope some people who are interested in, in your work can connect with you through those uh those handles and those that information you provided and mike is there anything else uh just thanks so much dave for for joining us also to our listeners, this episode will hopefully be released before the Foodscaper Summit, which Dave is presenting on a lot of the things that he talked about today. So be sure to tune into that. That's true. I'm a little more, I'll, I did it. Yeah, I did a presentation and I submitted it and it's a little more organized because I have my lists and it's a PowerPoint. And so if you're, if you're looking to get super deep on plant geekery, yeah, check out that Foodscaper Summit. I, I think my presentation is called Perennial Edible Plants or something, something like basic like that. All righty. Well, if you made it this far, listeners, thanks for sticking with us. And can't wait to see you next time. Have a good one. Thanks, guys.